the people had an incredible faith in and a firm conviction of living prophets. And that is what guided their steps into polygamy and out of polygamy. It really is an inspiring thing to look at in retrospect. Hello and welcome to Saints. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing chapter 35 of Saints Volume 2, A Day of Trial. And today we have the great opportunity of having Elder Kyle S. McKay join us. He is the Assistant Executive Director of the Church History Department. So welcome, Elder McKay. Thank you for the invite. Well, our listeners will remember in our last episode, it's almost like a movie. George Cannon had been thrown from the train. He's cracked his nose and he has a big gash in his head and he's being taken off to jail. Elder McKay, can you tell us what's happening now with George Q. Cannon and what is his role in the church at this time? So he's a member of the First Presidency and he's about to go on trial under some of the anti-polygamy legislation and he's being brought back to Salt Lake. And if you read the chapter, there's a big crowd there waiting for him, a supportive crowd. He's kind of bruised and battered, both, I would think, physically and spiritually. In the chapter, we learn that George is released on bail, and it's a significant amount of money. I did a little bit of Googling, and I checked a few different sites, but essentially forty dollars to $50,000 in money at that time is over a million dollars in today's money. money. So this is not an, an insignificant amount of money. And George is planning on going to trial and facing the court. But President Taylor receives a revelation concerning what George should do. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book and then talk a bit about what the implications were. That night, however, the Lord revealed to President Taylor that his first counselor should go back into hiding. The revelation was like a flash of lightning, and after it came, the prophet immediately knelt beside his bed in grateful prayer. A few years earlier, the Lord had inspired him to invest non-tithing church money into a mining company in order to create a special reserve fund for the church. President Taylor believed the reserve should be used to reimburse the men who had put up George's bond. So this is not unlike other things that have happened throughout history. Nephi makes another set of plates. He doesn't know why. President Taylor makes this investment without a clear understanding of what it might be used for. But now he gets this revelation, this impression or prompting that these funds can be used to pay the bond. I think it should be remembered that both George Q. Cannon and President Taylor intended on President Cannon being tried. Right. Uh, I think that was their mindset, and that's where they were headed. And so this revelation came, I don't want to call it a surprise, but it came as a relief and wasn't totally expected. Well, and we'll learn in future chapters that the use of these funds does cause some concern because not everyone is privy to the fact that this revelation has come. And from the outside, not understanding that, they're sort of thinking maybe that funds were used that shouldn't have been. Right, and we'll get into that in future chapters, but at the time you remember that most of the apostles and even local leaders are in hiding, and uh, there's only a few of the Quorum of the Twelve who get to consider this, and they approve of it, and so they move forward. Something else that's going on in this chapter is, we've read about it before too, the Edmonds-Tucker Act, and so we know that it's passed, but we also read about Emmeline Wells. Elder McKay, can you remind us who Emmeline Wells is, and what is her role, and what does she do in this chapter? She is a rock of a woman, just a gifted saint. 
She grows up starting out with a pretty strong personality, resisted, I believe, early on a membership in the church, but was eventually baptized in frigid water. They had to break the ice in order to baptize her. She goes through a life of trials. Two years after her baptism, Joseph Smith is martyred. Her firstborn child dies. Then her husband's family becomes disaffected with the church, and then her husband leaves and doesn't return. He leaves seeking employment. So she eventually ends up as a plural wife to Newell K. Whitney, comes west with that family, and then he dies. And to show her spunk, this little lady actually ends up proposing to her final husband (laughs) to be one of his plural wives, Daniel Wells. On top of that, she's just a thinker and a gifted woman. Now we find her back east, having been in kind of a lobbying mode on behalf of the saints, and, and particularly women. She was a women's rights advocate for women's suffrage. And in the middle of all of this, she's back east. She's doing what she can. And indeed, she had done what she thought she could possibly do and is now westbound on her way home when she receives a telegram from the president of the church saying, please go back and present this resolution seeking some sort of relief and calling upon the feelings of others mothers and those who might have compassion on us. So she turns around, and like Alma of old, who left Ammonihah, this woman turns around, and a couple of days later, she's back in Washington, D.C., advocating the cause. I love that you made that comparison, and I just think about her situation. She's given a lot of responsibility, and while she's coming back, she had missed that great indignation meeting that we talked about in previous chapters, and so I can't help but think how proud she was of the women because here she is, you know, lobbying on behalf of women. And what I thought was interesting about these resolutions that she's now going to be taking back to Washington, D.C., is it pleads with the wives and mothers in the U.S. to come to the aid of Utah women. I think it's helpful to remember, and we we have talked about this before, but let's just remember what did the Edmunds-Tucker Act do? So we've had these increasingly punitive acts by the government. Let's just listen here to a little quote from the book that explains when the Edmunds-Tucker Act passes in early 1887, what that actually meant for members of the church. Women in the territory lost their right to vote, and children born of plural marriage were stripped of inheritance rights. Prospective voters, jurors, and local government officials were required to take an anti-polygamy oath. The church and the perpetual emigrating fund ceased to exist as legal entities, and the government was given authority to confiscate certain church properties valued at over $50,000. So, in real terms, we just had the federal government pass laws to disenfranchise a group of people based on their religious beliefs, disincorporate the church— and even confiscate the temple, because they certainly would have been valued at more than $50,000. I think it's unprecedented in this country's history that the Congress of the United States would take aim with such focus at one religious group. And so it went from not only not enjoying the protections of the Constitution to now there's an outright hostility and We are going to go after one religious, just a tiny religious group. Uh, Maybe on one level, it's a backhanded compliment that we're growing so rapidly. But I don't know that we have another instance in our country's history where the Congress of the United States has taken aim at one religious body with such focus and over a period of years. Yeah. Major implications. I can't even imagine how they reacted. 
Well, and speaking of implications, this story was really cute, but it's also a little bit disturbing. We learn about Augusta Dorius Stevens, who's teaching primary. And can you remind us what she's teaching the kids in primary? Well, just of necessity, she's having to teach the children how to exercise civil disobedience and how to be cagey around law enforcement officers and how to not be questioned or how to act when you are questioned. There again, this wouldn't happen nowadays. For sure. But you don't pull out children and then start questioning them in an effort to find evidence and gather evidence against their parents. And it was just a hard period for the saints and a not so good period for our government. Well, to paint the picture a little more, these marshals are kind of rounding up plural wives and children and interrogating them. And so she's encouraging the children to muddle the investigation and confuse the marshals. So yeah, that's kind of a lot of responsibility put on these little kids. So she is teaching that, but she is also teaching other things. She, she, <laughs> she absolutely is. And it's really sweet. So we have to listen to a little clip here from the book of some of the things that were being taught. Like other church leaders, she also emphasized the importance of taking the sacrament worthily each week, which the children did in Sunday school. We must not take the sacrament if we have bad feelings in our heart toward our playmates or anyone else, she taught them. We must be prayerful and have the Spirit of God that we may love one another. If we hate our playmate or our brother or sister, we cannot love God. Yeah, beautiful teaching. So in addition to teaching them to be the Oliver Twist character of the artful Dodger, mm-hmm. she's <laughs> teaching them eternal principles that will make good citizens out of them. In our last episode, we talked about Ida Udall and her current situation living underground. So Elder McKay, can you talk a little bit more about what she's facing now? What's her situation now? So her story is heart-wrenching, and it kind of gives us the human element of the plural marriage life. It was not easy. In fact, if you take into account the fact that almost to a person, everybody who was initially introduced to it, starting with Joseph, resisted it and then accepted it and then lived it, this was a hard thing. And so here we have a woman who hasn't seen her husband in a long time, gets frustrated with it, is worried about him because he's been arrested. And there are several accounts, I guess, that they could have brought against him. He eventually received a pardon. But there's still the Edmonds Act or the Edmonds-Tucker Act. And she's frustrated. And she's raising a child alone in Nephi, Utah, while her husband's down in Arizona. And she writes a kind of a heartfelt letter. It's raw. And then later regrets it. And her husband communicates his love. And they're okay. The thing that draws me in is the fact that when he finally does come to get her and they're rejoined, they travel to Arizona and it's a three-week journey and that is the longest period of time they have been together alone in their five-year marriage. That is rough. That is rough. You just have to feel for Ida. To use another Book of Mormon example, when she wrote the letter, I sort of felt like she was Moroni writing to Pehoran, you know? (laughs) That's what I thought, too. And I was like, oh, dear, this is not going to work out. But thankfully, there was some charity on both sides, and they were able to work through it. But how difficult that must have been and what faith it must have taken to stick with the principle, even though it was so difficult to live. Right. I thought of Sariah complaining to Lehi and not unfounded complaints. Right. They're just real human issues. And speaking of these difficult human issues, we now catch up with Susa Young-Gates. She is serving in Hawaii on a mission with her husband, and she has her children with her too, or, or most of her children. And 
The book just kind of describes Jacob's job. He's a sugar boiler, and Susa's doing her best to make clothes for her children, and she's writing and submitting all these articles. But she really encounters some heartbreaking tragedies. Elder McKay, let's talk a little bit about what happens to her. I can't comprehend what she went through, honestly. It really brought me to tears to think of her holding her little child and rubbing his stomach during the night and then finally being convinced by her husband to go to bed while he watches over the boy and then having the faith. She had the faith and everybody involved in this, including President Joseph F. Smith of the First Presidency, who administered to the child. There was great faith and ministering that went on and yet the boy died. And then soon after, and he's a little four-year-old boy, then soon after his younger brother, three years old, dies and is devastating to her. And then she loses feeling of the child within her womb. And then it's th this great lesson that the mere fluttering inside of her that she felt gave her hope amidst all of that darkness and all of that trial. She reminds me of a verse in a poem, the last verse, and it's about women of this kind of strength. And the last verse simply says, no uncanny show of strength in trial Rather, bowed she pressed and trusted solely in the course of him who promised, I am able to make you holy. And that is Susie Young Gates. Oh, absolutely. She is such a strong woman and a strong voice of faith. She is a wonderful writer, and much of what we know is because she was able to record these things in sort of real time, and we can feel what that must have felt like because of her gift in writing. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book that describes this moment that Elder McKay has just talked to us about. Then one day she felt a slight flutter, a small sign of life. A very faint motion comforts me with hope that life still beats under my saddened heart, she wrote her mother. She did not understand why her sons had died, but she found strength knowing that God was watching over her. With all this, we know that God rules in the heavens, she wrote her mother. God has blessed me and helped me to bear my burdens. Praise his holy name forever. Those are sweet and powerful words. It's a reminder of God's goodness. It is always there in uh, our deepest trials even, but the skeptic might line up the two against each other, the death of a child, the death of another child, and darkness and loneliness and questioning. On the other side of the ledger is a flutter and that woman of faith was able to take that flutter and use it as a tool, as a foundation against everything else on the other side of the ledger. Another difficult aspect of this is that the saints in that area were fasting and praying, and there were leaders of the church that were aware of the situation. And it's just incredible that she's able to say, even despite this, God rules in the heavens, and she just accepts his will. And not that that makes her situation easy, but she's able to bear it because of her faith. Yes, and there are parallels that we are aware of, and usually we experience, most of us have experienced something like this. You have a member of the First Presidency giving a priesthood blessing to this child, and in my family, a member of the First Presidency, President Faust, gave a blessing to my uncle, rebuking his cancer and promising certain things, and a short time later, my uncle died. And so what do we do? Well, we hold fast to the flutters, and we carry on. One of the sweet things that comes out of this is the ministering of President Joseph F. Smith. He and, and our modern-day corollary is our current prophet. My observation is that if President Russell M. Nelson is awake, he is ministering. 
whenever I see him, wherever I see him, whether it's on a television or in private settings, he is ministering to someone. And that's Joseph F. Smith. So Joseph F. Smith has been in Hawaii. He has been hiding there, hoping to avoid being prosecuted for plural marriage. And he receives a letter from George Q. Cannon and President John Taylor inviting him to come home. President Taylor is ill. And can you tell us about what happens there and how has this first presidency been functioning? It has been very difficult on the general church level and local church levels this First presidency hasn't been together in a good long time, and President Smith comes home at risk of being captured, and it was a relief. I'm thinking of George Q. Cannon now to some of the things we mentioned earlier. George Q. Cannon sees a wagon pull up and out steps Joseph F. Smith, and suddenly George Q. Cannon is no longer alone, and not only that, but the First Presidency is together. I think it's important to remember the power of a quorum, beginning with the quorum of the First Presidency. And there is great strength and brotherhood in the First Presidency, including that First Presidency with John Taylor and George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith. They were finally at home together, and there was power and unity and strength and fellowship in that great bond of brotherhood that existed in that quorum. And then Joseph F. Smith continues to minister just as he had with the little Gates boys and to that family. Now Joseph F. Smith sits by John Taylor's side until he passes. It's really a poignant moment there to see the, the passing of John Taylor. To me, it's miraculous. In today's world, I can pick up my phone, I can text someone around the world, we're in communication immediately. I can check the flight status and see when you're gonna land and know exactly when to pull my car out of the lot to pick you up at the <laughs> door. It's amazing to me that President Taylor's health held long enough that Joseph could make his way from Hawaii, sailing, travel overland under an assumed name, arrive there in the house they were hiding out at in Caseville, and be together, that they made it. I mean, to me, that's a miracle that they were able to reconnect after two and a half years of being separated. And it's a miracle that they were able to put some things in motion, make some decisions, and then President Taylor was able to pass away. Yeah, God does not wear a wristwatch, but sometimes he pays attention to our timing. And that was a tender thing that happened to get those three brethren united. And all three of them were in hiding. So what happens next? I mean, John Taylor, he's passed, and now what? Well, that, you've just set the stage for our next chapter. No. <laughs> <But> I, <laughs> like they didn't tell anyone, right? Right. Well, yeah, there's a wonderful quote here. It, of course, it ends the chapter, but we got to listen to this because it's just so canon and it's perfect. It does set us up nicely for the next chapter. The quote goes like this. George also knew that he and Joseph had to act quickly. If John's death became public too soon, the marshals might learn of their whereabouts and come after them. He and Joseph were no longer safe. We must break camp, George announced, and get away from here as soon as possible. Enter suspenseful music. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But also recognize that with the passing of the president, these two brethren are no longer in charge. They are not the senior apostles. Right. And so they are walking on some delicate ground here because Wilford Woodruff is the next in line, and they don't want to make decisions that 
usurp his authority, but they're acting in the best interest of everyone involved, and they did the right thing. And Wilford Woodruff, he's in St. George, and George Q. Cannon has been doing the bulk of church business out of necessity. And so it's going to be interesting to see, especially because with the passing of the last several presidents, the first presidency doesn't form right away. And so it's just interesting to see how this works out. Elder McKay, we so much appreciate you and your thoughts and taking time to come and chat with us. Before we let you go, I do have a few other questions for you. I'm hoping Maybe you can share with our listeners, as the Assistant Executive Director of the Church History Department, from your perspective. Now, we asked Elder Curtis this as well, who is our church historian and recorder. But from your perspective, why is this important? Why is the church spending all of this time and effort to tell our story in this new narrative way? When I left the home each morning to go to school as a child— my mother would always say what my ancestors had said to them. Remember who you are and what you stand for. You cannot remember who you are unless you know who you are. And all of this gives us a chance to understand who we are, where we have been, what we have been through. It is also a portend of, of what lies ahead. And we can draw strength from the past, and it helps us understand our identity. Can you summarize for us some of the things that were most important to you in this chapter? Yeah, one of the things that stood out, in addition to everything else we've talked about, is that the people had an incredible faith in and a firm conviction of living prophets. And that is what guided their steps into polygamy and out of polygamy. It really is an inspiring thing to look at in retrospect. Without taking a stand here and now on polygamy, I'm, I'm not defending that then or now, but I am defending and admiring a people's faith who would follow a prophet and have such a firm conviction of living prophets. And I hope that that is part of our past, part of our present, and will always be a firm feature in our future. Elder McKay, it's been such an incredible experience having you here today to share your thoughts about this chapter and your experience as well. We really appreciate that. Thank you. And we'd invite you, our listeners, to join us again on our next episode, as well as email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. We love to get your feedback and questions, and you can always check out our website, saints.churchofjesuschrist.org, for the latest videos, topics, and more. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for listening.